Broadcasting from the James Baldwin Seminar Room on the campus of Bowling Green State University, this is Real CRT. I'm Tim Messer-Cruz, and I'm here with my fellow thought outlaws, Jason, John Jamal, Alex, Cheris, and Amanda. Well, uh, news of the week, I think, uh, if you remember last week, I said I had a fear that just like an old horror movie, just when we thought HB327 was dead, someone would hear a knock on the door and it would be the bloody monster coming back from the grave. And that's exactly what has happened. Uh, this week, the news broke that a new bill, HB616, it should have been 666. I don't know how they avoided that. but uh, That's the, the, the third installment. That, that'll, be, that'll be the innovation. Uh, 616 was introduced, which is modeled loosely on the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill, uh, into which they have dumped some general language about divisive concepts and uh, outlawing discussion of critical race theory and the 1619 Project and so forth. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, this seems to be coming back. I don't know how serious a threat this is to public education. It applies primarily to K-12. It's a serious threat to K-12. I mean, it's, I don't know how serious a threat to passage it is. It appears to me that uh, it only has two sponsors at the current point. Uh, so I'm not sure it has the full support of even the GOP caucus, but... It's still the first days here, and things do get crazy towards the end of the legislative session. Um, but I want to know what, what all of you think about this, this new uh, departure down in Columbus. So as someone who used to live in Columbus, Ohio, uh, which is kind of the San Francisco of the Midwest, uh, yeah, being in Columbus and sponsoring a don't, go say, don't Say Gay Bill is definitely a way to engender a whole lot of resentment very quickly. Um, one thing that I found fascinating following Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill is it's inspired these waves of malicious compliance, um, wherein teachers following the new rules, saying they're not allowed to discuss gender and sexuality 
in their K through three classes have now stopped using any gendered pronouns to refer to their students, have stopped devoiding, dividing boys and girls, have stopped dividing the boys and girls restrooms, have mm-hmm. started using gender neutral terminology like mm-hmm. mix instead mm-hmm. of miss and mister, have stopped mm-hmm. discussing their spouses, etc. Um, so they've stopped doing any discussion of gender binaries or heterosexuality, which I think are generally taken as granted by people sponsoring these bills and have sort of made their uh, classrooms extremely queer in a non-binary way (laughs) instead of in a gay way as a response to the don't say gay bills. The unintended consequences. Right. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to see such a broad term like diversity and inclusion initiatives, you know, and I, I just thought, wow, that's that's really bold. Uh, then what are we going to talk about? I guess nothing. So I just found the language of the bill very problematic for many reasons. Um, And I don't know how discussing diversity and inclusion is divisive. You would think that inclusion, Mm -hmm. the word inclusion, by its very definition, runs counter to the word divisive. But I suppose they're not proofreading these bills. Yeah. And unlike HB 327, which at least makes some kind of a superficial attempt to define these divisive concepts, the interesting thing about 616 is that it simply lists the titles of these divisive concepts and offers no definition. For instance, it says basically critical theory, critical race theory is banned. Um, The discussion of diversity and inclusion initiatives is banned. It never actually defines what those things are. And I think that's intentional. I think that is because the sponsors of these bills understand that in a school setting, teachers are obviously and and understandably reticent to even approach the red line that's statutory. And so if you can make that line as fuzzy as possible by not defining terms, it will cause teachers to self-censor as opposed to being maybe, you know, told what to do by their administrators, they will simply not approach anything even remotely related to these topics out of fear of stepping over some some line that they can't actually see. And the, the vagueness of that is a, a little, it may put them in a corner. Um, so to step a little bit away from the race and gender concepts, one aspect that is uh, legally required of public schools related to equity in education and inclusion in education is disability services for mm. disabled children and access to education. So um, that is one aspect of diversity <laughs> right. is, is, you know, children with disabilities that that's need right. access to education. So um, I'm sure that's not what they intended here. Uh, but that's, you know, it could run counter to what they're looking at, critical race theory or intersectional theory, uh, the 1619 project, uh, which I guess that is, you can look it up and know what that is, but everything else is pretty not well-defined uh, in this bill. Yep. Uh, the other thing that I've noticed uh, the news reports about this bill have overlooked that's very significant is that this bill will effectively abolish the state Uh, Department of Education. Um, This is because the bill devolves the sole responsibility for setting curriculum and setting uh, educational standards 
to the local school board. Currently, of course, we have a state board of education, which establishes educational standards for the whole state so that we have some kind of consistency. Uh, this, will, this, will, this, this bill clearly says local school boards will set standards, curricula, choose textbooks, and so forth for their own district. That effectively abolishes any kind of standardization, any kind of state control over education, public education in Ohio. I'm going to say something about the, uh, the, the two links. The, the bill, which I looked at a little bit, um, and as I kept reading, it just it, it was translating to me like to say, don't talk about American history. Don't mm -hmm. talk about uh, America. Don't talk about what white people did to mm -hmm. black people. Don't talk about anything from a black perspective. No, 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 no. And remain stupid. Mm -hmm. Let's let's remain ignorant. Let's remain uninformed. Let's celebrate the fact that we are ignorant and relatively uninformed. And there was a quote in the article about this bill, uh, a Twitter post from a state representative from Warren, Ohio. <laughs> and so he was celebrating on Twitter the fact that he had introduced this bill that, you know, banned discussions about sexuality and gender from K through third grade. Uh, and I was just wondering, so between eight and nine years old, is that's when the, it becomes acceptable to discuss these things. But in any event, uh, his previous tweet said, the, <laughs> the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Mm. We need more guns, not fewer. And, and I was just wondering, uh, if we need more guns, if there's more guns, won't more bad guys have guns too? <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, you, you'd think so. Yeah. You know, I've always said that the only thing that stops a bad guy with sarin gas is a good guy with sarin gas. That's right. <laughs> so I, I like applying that same logic to other weapons as well and seeing how well it holds up. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, circling back to sort of the vagueness of the language uh, of the bill, right? Of banning critical race theory and intersectionality. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, without defining what they are, I think it serves two purposes. One, I don't think Michael Lojcik is very smart, and I don't think he knows what critical race theory is. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that. Uh, he can come fight me. Uh, that's cool. Um, number two, um, by leaving these terms undefined, you are potentially giving yourself more enforcement power down the line, right? What is critical race theory? It's anything I don't like. Um, and so you can sort of, and I think this is how this has played out so far, right? Uh, as we've noted many, many times before, no one's reading Richard Delgado in the third grade. Um, so banning critical race theory becomes a shorthand for sort of enforcing doctrinal education. And by leaving those terms undefined, you can sort of make up the doctrine as you go along, right? You have this undefined law that you give yourself the ability to enforce and thus any enforcement that you want to make can then be brought back under the auspice of the undefined law. So it's this very sort of circular, very illusory, you know, very sort of 
if you have power, critical race theory is whatever you want it or don't want it to be kind of operation that's going on. Well, and it not only it gives that power to the parents, right? Because the bill also has the stipulation that, you know, any citizen can bring forward a claim and mm-hmm. this has to be investigated by the superintendent and the state board. And, you know, there's going to be inquiry into every teacher that brings up one of these issues. So uh, by not defining it, yeah, you've given a wide range of power for any any parent, any citizen who's upset about something that they think mm-hmm. their kid learned. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and while the bill currently doesn't impact higher education, uh, it only requires the addition of two words for that to happen, mm-hmm. and that those two words are state agency. Mm-hmm. All they have to do is, I'm not, I hope they're not listing and getting <laughs> ideas here. That would be <laughs> terrible. Um, but, but adding the word state agency would it would, 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 would grandfather in higher education in that in that designation but it's undoubtedly going to have an impact on higher education because if you've got school districts determining the curriculum and they're being taught a very sanitized version of history which they're all you know one could argue that that's happening anyway but we're going to a even further extreme with this bill they're going to come to college campuses completely uh just I mean, ill-equipped, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and unable to, I, I just keep thinking about the idea of r- racial literacy. And this is really, this is, this is the absolute opposite of it. And I don't, I just, I don't see how, how this benefits anybody in the situation other than to quell white parental fears of guilt and shame that they don't want their Johnny or Sally to feel uncomfortable with America's history. Um, That's really the only, like the only people being protected in this situation are parents in my mind, Um, not the children. Well, and it, it also aims, I think, to not only, you know, make sure white kids don't feel guilty, but to attempt to brainwash and disaffirm queer children, black children, Mm -hmm. Latinx children, um, and say that this thing called systemic oppression doesn't exist. They're just some bad actors in the world. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, people do bad things individually, but um, there is no systemic racism. Mm -hmm. There is no systemic oppression uh, of queer and non-binary and and gay folks. um, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. you know, I keep thinking back to you know, this concept of colorblindness uh, and the idea of colorblindness as something that is aspirational versus colorblindness as something that is assumed to already exist. And that there is no sure way to make to see a goal go unfulfilled than to state that it has already been finished, mm-hmm. right? I'm thinking back right. to like when uh, George W. Bush gave his famous mission accomplished speech, like what, 2003? Like very, mm-hmm. very early on in the Iraq war. And then we had like another- <laughs> 10 years. Yeah, another yeah. decade yeah. of yeah. Iraq war yeah. mm-hmm. um, yeah. that was very sort of meandering and aimless because mm-hmm. we said we had won it, but we mm-hmm. were still doing it. So what was our- condition for winning. So yeah, you create this sort of paradoxical space 
which then makes you sort of running on the treadmill forever. Um, because you are not allowed to acknowledge your target. You're not allowed to acknowledge your conditions because you're being told that those things have already been accomplished. Well, let me let me begin by uh, introducing you to the to the class. And by the way, uh, Dr. Lewis, this is my class. This is Critical Race Theory, Ethnic Studies, sixty eight hundred. And uh, so, uh, and we are speaking today uh, with Professor Amanda Lewis. She is a distinguished professor of sociology and African American studies, and the director of the Institute for Research on Race and Public Policy at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Lewis earned her PhD from the University of Michigan, and she is the author of several award-winning books, including with co-author John Diamond, the book that we read for this week, Despite the Best Intentions, Why Racial Inequality Persists in Good Schools. That was from Oxford University Press 2015. And uh, a little earlier, Race in the Schoolyard, Negotiating the Color Line in Classrooms and Communities, and that was Rutgers, 2003. Both of those books, by the way, won prestigious awards. And uh, I think we, we saw in our reading why. Um, she's published in many journals, a list that's longer than I'm going to read today, but a very impressive list. And she's also, her work has been uh, funded and supported by the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, Spencer Foundation, Russell Sage Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, Ford Foundation, and the American Sociological Association. So uh, this is a... Uh, uh, very clear recognition of the, the quality and the importance of what you do. Um, so uh, without further ado, uh, welcome to our class and thank you so much for, for participating and, and for uh, coming to, uh, to answer our questions. And um, I, 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 I think I, I forewarned you, um, we have a tradition in the class and that's that since this is uh, critical race theory, we start off every week and we ask our distinguished guest scholars, um, in their view, what is critical race theory? Um, well, I wish, I wish I could see all the other responses you've gotten, as I'm sure it's changing a lot in the current moment. Um, and I thought I would tell you about a little story, actually, about my career in critical race theory. Um, Great. And so um, I have you know, I started down this path of, of being a researcher, um, I kind of backed into this whole thing. I didn't seek out, I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a professor or anything. I just had some research I really wanted to do. Um, and I was very earnest about it and very focused on, you know, my work was gonna, you know, change the world and all that kind of stuff. So um, I wrote my first book, Race in the Schoolyard. And 
I, of course, engaged a little bit in the course of graduate school with some critical race theory. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, it was a pretty delimited field. You know, Kimberly Crenshaw, Ian Haney Lowe, people who are really understanding and rigorously engaging with how um, race had been constructed through the law, how the law was racialized. You know, it was very kind of narrow field. Um, so that, and I was working in a long, you know, tradition going back to Du Bois in sociology of people engaging with categories of race and with conversations about racism in critical ways, but not CRT in any kind of way or, or fashion. But, um, and part of the reason I tell this story is because it shows in, in certain ways how this thing we're seeing now where critical race theory has become a shorthand for all that is bad in the world, according to some people, um, is not necessarily new and or not just like something that like right wing Republicans do. But um, and that was uh, so right after Race of the Schoolyard came out, I um, promise the story will end soon. Um, a, uh, I, it, a couple friends called me and, you know, it started to get reviewed and I was, you know, great reviews or whatever. And then a friend called me and said, don't, there's a review of your book out today in, in um, contemporary sociology, contemporary sociology, you know, she said, don't read it. It's really mean. And it's not about your book. It's really a critique of critical race theory. And, um, you know, in the field of education, there was some controversy at the time because you know, people in education were starting to adopt or some of the principles of critical race theory. And, you know, there can be occasional sloppiness of people, you know, saying, what's your theory? And they're like, oh, I do CRT. So, you know, whatever. But, you know, the field of sociology of education historically is often really conservative. They feel undervalued and kind of like people don't take it seriously enough. So there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on. And anyway, so she, and then another friend called me and said, whatever you do, don't read it. It's really mean. It's not about your book. It's about something else. So I didn't read it. I sort of regret, you know, but, um, but I knew what the theme, I knew that there was something about some critique of criticalist theory and using my book to kind of say that people who study race in this way were um, ideological and not, you know, not objective, you know, you can imagine. So um, I went to do it. I had a job, luckily, but I got uh, interviewed for, I got a, you know, an invitation to come in um, interview at Stanford in the College of Education there. And I went and the very first meeting I had the very first morning was um, with, you know, somebody who was also at a joint appointment in African American Studies and he was a nice guy. And he was like, you know, I have a question for you. And I said, yeah. And he said, um, do you consider yourself a critical race theory person? And I said, no. And I said, you know, I don't even really talk about much of my book. It's not, and then I, and then suddenly I paused and I was like, wait a minute, why are you asking me that? Yeah, yeah. And so somebody in the college that morning had ignored the five other reviews of my book and just made copies of that one review from contemporary sociology and put it in everybody's mailbox. And so it became this thing I had to talk about all, you know, and it was like one of these. And I thought about that recently because it was such an interesting, it was so clear what was going on in the kind of disciplinary policing. And, you know, so what I would say is that historically, I, I love the work in critical race theory. I don't have not identified my work as essentially part of that tradition. I know that a lot of younger sociologists, particularly, you know, like we used to talk about our work as kind of critical race studies. And, 
in some ways kind of demarcating it from other kind of work in the field we could talk about. But I know that some other folks like Victor Ray and some of those folks are kind of taking on critical race theory and kind of are broadening the definition of it, which I think yeah. is cool. I don't mm -hmm. have any objection to it. But um, sort of when I was coming up in the world, as they say, it was in a kind of more delimited area. But I've certainly read a ton of it over, year, over the years, and it's on most of my syllabi in some form or fashion. I was te just teaching a class last night where we read Peg Peggy Pascoe's book, What Comes Naturally About Anti-Miscegenation Laws. So Anyway, that's my that's my critical race theory I like story. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's that's terrific, and uh, of course, you know that's that's on all of our minds right now. The the whole yeah. anti CRT moral panic, which just seems to be snowballing by every day. Um, and and um, in fact, I, I should say that because of that anti CRT moral panic, um, that's actually determined the kind of the structure of our class because when I informed the dean that I was going to teach this class and that I was also planning on uh, podcasting um, our guests as, as a way for kind of opening the window into what critical race theory actually is and the way that we talk about it here in academia, um, he, uh, he ordered me not to have student voices uh, in this portion of the class. So I to get around that, I've solicited questions from my students, and I read them. <laughs> and you can see that they, 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 what they think about that policy. Um, so so I, I, I have these questions. I, some of them I'll paraphrase. Some of them I'll combine. Some of them I, I combine some themes and ask other questions. But, but generally, everything I'm going to ask you is kind of student-generated. I'm barred from actually having their voices because of the, the moral panic about critical race theory. Anyway, um, one, of the, one of the questions that uh, students have asked, and I, I, I can use their first names, uh, Amanda asked this question. Um, you know, we are, we're currently in a political landscape that is very much opposed to teaching such concepts, <laughs> whatever they may be under the rubric of critical race theory um, in, in K-12, and in some cases, higher education classrooms. Um, so she asked, what, what can be done if educators and even administrators are, are inundated with these new pressures from state uh, anti-critical race theory legislation, um, what can be done to, uh, to uh, really talk about race in the classroom and, and address many of the problems that you identify in, in your book? Such a good question. All the good questions come from Amanda. So I just want to. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's interesting. I think we need to remember how powerful the critical race theory moral panic is and its limits. So it's absolutely the case that if you're in Mississippi right now or Texas or Tennessee, I can't remember all the places, New Hampshire, um, it's really changed the conditions of teaching. Um, there are other places like in California and Arizona, where I am in Chicago, where there's all this new energy around teaching ethnic studies around in Chicago. There's this whole new curriculum getting developed about Chicago's racial history. There's curriculum that was sort of mandated a few years ago through a lawsuit called Reparations One about a kind of history of police violence in the city. So there are, you know, in the post-Trump moment, um, local politics became increasingly important for shaping what goes on, particularly what happens in schools. Um, and so, you know, I think it's um, both a powerful 
story about how schools in many ways get, I mean, undermined I mean, about the, you know, this debate really is not about schools is all you all know that it's not about um, what happens in schools, but it is having a big impact in schools in some places. And I think the tragedy of it, there's multiple tragedies, but one of the central tragedies is there's so many ways that we need to be thinking about race and racial dynamics in schools. Some of them are about patterns of access and opportunity and resources. And that's not so much related to, to this debate going on right now, or even impacted by it in the same kind of way. Although certainly it's true that a lot of the states where this is going on, there are high levels of inequality that maybe are not being as, as addressed in the same way they should. With some stories, there's some interesting stuff going on in Austin right now, we could get into that. So there's that kind of story about race and racial inequality and racism. Um, in terms of content, which I think is part of what's going, you know, we're talking about here, the, um, the impacts are multiple because in some states, the way it's measured is that um, any person, sort of like that new abortion law in Texas, which is that any person can sue you or basically threaten to sue, you know, so it, the potential for teachers is not so much, am I worried about my principal or the superintendent or somebody, but any random parent can mm -hmm. basically accuse me, you know, and then I got a lawyer and it's very, you know, all the expensive. But, um, you know, stepping back for a second, not only do young people, all of us need a certain kind of level of racial literacy, um, a sense of uh, knowledge about the history of our country that's accurate and complex and full. I mean, that's hugely important for everybody, particularly for students of color, but there are critical, I mean, you know, middle school and high school, the main thing going on for young people through adolescence is really important struggles around their identity, who I am, mm -hmm. how do I relate to other people? Where do I fit in the world? Yep. And those kind of questions are all about not just race, but race and gender and sexuality and all these things. And our job as adults is to help people navigate those realizations. Those other, there's so much work that's um, central to helping young people become fully realized adults so in some ways, it's we're just kind of in the name of politics, we're just kind of completely abdicating our responsibility. Um, but it is it does kind of follow one of the things, you know, one of the themes from the book is in many ways that there are a lot of pedagogical decisions or what we know to be good pedagogy gets sacrificed because of power. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so this is, I think, another example of that. I'm not sure I'm giving you kind of no, great, like absolutely. what can teachers do thing, but um <laughs> I will say there is really positive and amazing work going on in some places. So it's, it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a complete story of silencing and stuff. Yeah. Well, your, your book is, is, is really uh, wonderfully insightful. Uh, I, I especially appreciated um, now I, for, for, for our listeners who haven't read your book, um, your, your book kind of opens with, with the, uh, the longstanding question about the black white achievement gap. In, in schools that by standardized testing and GPAs and those sorts of things, there's a persistent gap between white students and students of color in many school districts and, and indeed uh, on national statistics. And um, oftentimes uh, for, 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 for many years, uh, the focus on explaining that has been on putting the onus on students of color themselves, um, talking about 
their negative peer pressure, um, the, 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 the characterization that academic achievement is acting white, um, maybe some sort of more general slander about um, African-American culture contributing to some sort of anti-educational principles. All of this, all of this research that has been focused on um, various aspects of the culture of students of culture and, and uh, students of color and that being an explanation. And you completely reverse that. You, you look instead at, at, at what, 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 what advancements, what, what, what privileges, what sort of factors push white students up in the achievement gap, not push students of color down. And you identify a great number of them. Um, and uh, so one question, I mean, it's been six years since your book came out, six, seven years. Um, what, what additional sorts of insights or research or um, uh, factors have, have you found or, or come across that expands that argument even beyond what you have here? So, so what, where, 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 have you, where have you taken it since this book and, and what, what other sorts of uh, uh, um, points and, and theories, uh, factors would you, would you kind of bring us up to date on? Yeah. Um, so we're actually about to come out with the second edition of the book where we add a couple of chapters about what's happened at Riverview in the years since, mm -hmm. and also a chapter about uh, a bunch of engagement that we've done um, in the years since with different school districts and schools who are trying to make change and do things and talk about lessons we've learned about what makes change easier, hard. And um, so I think this point you're raising is a really important one because, you know, one of the things that's um, uh, genius in some ways about white supremacy, right, is uh -huh. the way that we, it produces inequality and then racial ideology is then used to explain it away, right? So right. We, we, we offer completely different educational opportunities to people, we produce racial inequality, and then we look to the losers in this mix and say, oh, you know, if only they had the right stuff, they would not be where they are, right? So right. it is um, in the kind of most, um, uh, not sarcastic, but you know what I mean? But there's this, there's this kind of way in which it um, both, um, as I said, like generates all this inequality and then, and then offers an explanation for it. Um, so it is always surprising to me when we think about educational dynamics, how much this gets lost, this thing that you put it out, which is, is that, that racial dynamics are always relational, right? right. And that um, that's the point that um, we are, we, we think about disadvantage, but not about advantage and in lots of different ways. Um, Charles Payne wrote a book, I don't know, 1984, a long time ago, for a lot of you probably weren't, um, called Getting What We Ask For. And he basically critiques the idea that, that like, we most often when we think about inequality, look at the people at the bottom or the people closest to them. And we never think about the relationships between the have and the have nots and how much what the haves have is out of, out of relationships of extraction and exploitation and underdevelopment in some way or, or another. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's, a, a lot of what we see in, in um, at Riverview, and I think in the years since, you know, it's been interesting because I will say one of the ironic 
upsides of the 2016 election and everything happened in the years since is that a lot of the white parents that we interviewed and talked to before who felt like, you know, progress was inevitable and we were sort of post-race and Obama had gotten elected and stopped bothering them, suddenly were horrified, you know, in these kind of liberal communities like Riverview and, and felt like they certainly needed to do something. And we sort of became activated in different ways about thinking about racial inequality and thinking about their role in it. And I, you know, it's not universal by any means. I mean, one of the things we talk about is the continuing resistance to the changes that are going on, but it's at least a little bit more complicated. And I think, you know, obviously not our, just our work, the important work for Nicole Hannah-Jones and lots of other folks writing publicly. There was that um, podcast series New York Times did on nice white parents that sort of raise these questions and keep pointing to the fact that opportunity hoarding or whatever you want to call it is very much a kind of just a, another, these kind of more modern rec mechanisms, what, you know, Bonnie Silva would talk about a kind of form of new racism or, you know, there's different ways we could talk about it, but a kind of way that um, we keep getting the same outcomes, even though um, some of the rhetoric and other things have changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, that leads very nicely into uh, Shelby's question. Um, Shelby uh, points out that um, in one of your chapters where you discuss race, oppositional culture, and school outcomes, um, there, there's a, a portion where you discuss how um, black students discussed hard work as being the key for them to overcome discrimination. And, and, and this is also coming from their parents. And uh, from this, you suggest that the idea of hard work overcoming the challenges of discrimination provides a, quote, powerful counter-narrative to the discourse about black school failure, unquote. So, so Shelby asks, um, does this mean that we should be embracing meritocratic ideals? Does hard work truly lead to overcoming discrimination? Why or why not, in your view? Uh, no, is the short answer. I mean, <laughs> all we're trying to do there... So you know, this is a chapter that actually had a lot of tension, not tension, but there's some controversy around it. Cause when, you know, when you write a book like this, it goes out for what we call peer review and you get a lot. And the scholars who read it were like, why do you have this chapter? There's nothing new in it. We already know this is, you know, oppositional culture isn't a thing. And, and the publisher was very strongly, we agreed that like, okay, the 150 or 200 scholars who do this work know it's not a thing, but the larger world thinks it's still a thing. Right. Um, I think all the only point we were trying to make in that case is that there's a general understanding in the black community that discrimination often translates into folks having to work twice as hard to be considered half as good. It's just a kind of, you know, phrase. Right. And I'm not I'm not defending that. I'm not saying therefore work four times as hard. I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the theory behind oppositional culture or the idea that peer pressure is somehow what explains that black students are maybe not doing well in schools. The idea behind it is that because there's structural discrimination, right, there's this sort of gesture towards structural discrimination or racism that suggests that because of that, um, African-American students in the African-American community identify school as this hostile space or this white space and therefore discourage each other from engaging in it. Um, and therefore that leads to lower performance. And part of what we're saying is you know, there were a couple studies that suggested that. And then there have been since dozens and dozens and dozens of which have shown that not to be the case. But because that narrative about oppositional culture so easily fits within a kind of wide range of, you know, often kind of deficit narratives that suggest that um, 
black students than themselves, you know, that we don't, you know, in order to fix this, we just have to kind of fix peer culture or, I mean, you know, we don't really have to change the institutions or the structures or deal with inequality. And, you know, we can just, so um, I think that's what that chapter was meant to be. Um, and in particular, that point is just meant to kind of um, highlight that dynamic that if anything, a recognition of persistent and widespread discrimination doesn't dampen engagement. If anything, it often leads people to recognize that they're going to have to try harder. Um, so another way, I mean, I, you know, another way to answer this is that like, I often say to, to um, you know, I've done a lot of work in schools and with teachers and, um, you know, I have a, in general, a kind of structural analysis of race and racial dynamics and a kind of materialist understanding of racism. And some of that means that, like, you really ask me for my policy intervention, I'm going to say redistribute the wealth. I mean, I, you know, there's like some <laughs> macro level things that I think are most important. But, you know, when I'm in front of a class of fifth graders, you know, especially like a class of black and Latinx fifth graders, I'm not going to stand there and say, OK, you're all screwed, you know, give up, you know, like right. structural racism. you you know, I mean, that's there. So they're different when we're in different audiences, we make different kind of arguments. I, again, I'm not telling them that they need to work twice as hard, but I'm trying to help them learn how to navigate these institutions that they're embedded in so that they can live with as much, you know, they can learn how to thrive and live with as much dignity as possible and all those things. So I think that's also another way to think about some of these questions and how we talk about, you know, hard work, for instance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Indeed. Um, so going in a somewhat different direction, um, Alex, um, he, uh, he, he, he notes um, that uh, gender also has an educational impact. And um, I realize this is not the, the focus of your book, but um, he, he asked the question, um, are there specific race gender intersections and interactions that you see as posing unique challenges for school systems? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's one, the, the kind of, only one we talk about, I think, really explicitly in the book is the way that disciplinary um, things get meted out where, um, you know, the kind of particular racial ideology that students are wrestling with is slightly different. So I think kind of uh, general notions of blackness being equated with criminality impacted black boys very differently than black girls mm -hmm. and kind of historic mythology around hypersexualization of black girls meant that people were particularly uncomfortable with their bodies and policing them in different kinds of ways. So there is some of those things going on. You know, there's lots of gender patterns that are interesting. I mean, if you really want to understand peer pressure and its impact on outcomes, gender does matter. I mean, there is a lot of evidence that, that boys in general, all boys have some, um, that there's some uh, particular more aggressive um, teasing peer pressure around being a brainiac or being a nerd or some of that, you know, so there are some gendered things that are, that are true um, absent race, you know, or cross racial groups or whatever. Um, and, you know, we, we see this manifest in lots of different ways. I mean, I was just looking at some of the data in Chicago about graduation rates and that sort of thing. And, you know, we see some stable differences across gender and then within gender, there are some very, you know, there's some stuff going on. So there's certainly lots of ways. Um, and if you haven't read it already, I encourage people, there's some great work by like Carl O'Connor and Edward Morris, where they really play out some of these um, kind of intersectional 
Um, Prudence Carter's work also deals with a lot of that. So there's lots of good work on it. We probably don't spend enough time talking about gender in the book, um, but. Can't do everything. Yep. Um, Jenna asks, um, she, uh, she says, uh, Professor Lewis, in your book, you mentioned that blackness itself and the cultural styles exhibited by black students, some black students, um, uh, primes school officials to expect or be on alert for trouble um, and can have real consequences. So sh she wonders, in your opinion, where does this viewpoint stem from? Is this a learned behavior? Um, do you have any advice for students on how this type of stereotyping can be prevented? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of good research about, I mean, this is in some ways a, another form of implicit bias. I mean, I anytime we're talking about implicit bias, I like to make sure to really deeply contextualize it and a long history of structural racism. I mean, any of these ideas that we have about race started, you know, with the kind of formation of these racial categories hundreds of years ago and the imputation of meaning to them that was attached to the construction of these racial hierarchies. So the association of blackness with criminality was very much about policing and controlling black bodies during slavery. And so a lot of those ideas and, and have started then and continue into the present kind of, and there's lots of interesting work about that. Um, so I think there's a long and really pernicious history. So it should make us even more invested in trying to intervene. Um, there's some great work by people like Jennifer Eberhardt on bias and how it works. And, and in particular, this phenomenon that folks talk about, about how do we create friction? So, you know, the, um, when we ascribe race to people, I actually talk about this probably more explicitly in Race in the Schoolyard, but when we meet people, we ascribe a racial category to them. And that's not a neutral process. It carries with it all kinds of meanings, often that operate out of our conscious processing. It's part of growing up in this racialized social system. It shapes how we see, interact, what we expect of one another. That all of that is intervenable on. There are things that we can do about it. There's lots of interesting research about this. Um, I would point you actually to like uh, Cecilia Ridgeway's work, which is more about gender, but a lot of the a lot of the ideas carry over, which is that one of the very first things we have to do is acknowledge, understand, and be vigilant about how race, gender, all these things do shape our performance expectations of other people, shape our interactions in small groups in different ways. Um, so that there's this whole literature in sociology, social psychology on status expectations, which sort of is related to the work on implicit bias and research on stereotype threat. I don't know if folks are in, mm -hmm. know about all that work, but um, all of it talks about how these things play out and, and, um, and that they are things that we can intervene on. We can intervene on them by creating what some folks call identity safe institutions. Um, and that's not just like about I mean, it is about helping students sense of belonging, but it's also about creating institutions where we have high expectations with for everybody. We help them reach those expectations. There's a lot of more structural stuff involved in it, but it signals to people, folks like you are valued here, they're respected here, they are full, full participants and citizens and all those kinds of things. And, um, and that takes really deliberate work and kind of deliberately anti-racist work in some ways. Um, but it is both some it's you know when we talk about this kind of stuff in trainings where we talk about it like a low blame and a high responsibility mm -hmm. kind of framework which means low blame and that everybody 
has some of this on different dimensions. So Mm -hmm. it's not about like finding the bad people, but that it makes all of us responsible for um, acting proactively to intervene and, and try to um, function in the world in ways that are as fair and just as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, through this whole period that, that you studied even well before 2015 and certainly accelerating right up to the current moment, um, one of the popular reforms, uh, school reforms, has been the idea of school choice, charter schools, homeschooling, um, various alternative educational systems. Um, what, and of course, the, 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 the Riverview School that you studied is a public school. Um, what, what do you see as being the, the impact of, of this accelerating school choice movement on the the uh, internal segregation of public schools that you so carefully and, and well described in in, in your example. Um, I think the you know the push of markets into schools has done incredible amounts of damage to collectively to public schooling across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually just talking yesterday too. We have a scholar from France who's over here a little bit. Um, and um, trying to, you know, understand a um, whole bunch of things related to school choice because they're starting to talk about it in France um, mm. or Macron is starting to talk about it as an answer there. Um, so we've done a bunch of other work recently about school choice in Chicago in particular. Um, it, you know, the I, there's so many things to say about it that um, <laughs> right. it it is such an illusion in so many ways. Um, all of the inequities um, that are present in our society get reproduced. School school choice makes them worse. Mm. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric that somehow it gives choice to you know people who otherwise wouldn't have choices, who would be stuck at their neighborhood school. But it turns out a lot of research shows that what people want is a good school in their neighborhood. And mm-hmm. part of what school choice does in large, especially in large places like this, is um, is there end up being a small group of very elite, kind of very good schools that everybody's fighting to get into. Um, and then most other folks end up in a kind of underfunded, you know, other schools. So um, there's, you know, I think really important conversations going on right now about how do we reinvest in a kind of a notion of the public good. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done there. So. Yes, indeed. Um, so um, I can, I can say his name cause he's not a student. My colleague, Jason Whitfield, uh, all participates, participates in our, in our seminar and co-produces the podcast. Um, and he has a, he has a question. Um, so he says, I, I, uh, your book, the best, Despite the Best Intentions, clearly articulates how policy and practice patterns in K-12 education create and sustain inequality between racial groups. Particular emphasis is given to how tracking students based on academic achievement is in fact racialized. Although this is not the central area of the book, do you believe that a similar effect occurs in post-secondary institutions, particularly related to programs or professions that require a graduate or professional degree. For example, Dr. Whitfield works in uh, our Health and Human Services College, and he finds that many pre-professional undergraduate programs that require graduate education are disproportionately white. 
Obviously, career selection and preparation are very different from tracking in the K-12 system. But he wonders if your approach would help understand how professional and graduate education may perpetuate such economic and racial inequities. Um, I mean, I think we could we could walk through the whole thing and, and we could see how it plays out in lots of different ways. I mean, I think the higher educational system is absolutely, you know, the level of resources and investment by institution you know, mirrors in some ways what we see in, in K-12, which is that majority minority institutions have far fewer resources on a bunch of different measures. Mm -hmm. And that there's kind of secondary segregation within institutions in various ways. And that that is a lot about resources. It's about cultural capital. It's about social capital. Um, I think it would be really interesting. I haven't seen it. I'm sure it exists somewhere, but I think it would be really interesting to, to study this. It makes me think a little bit, I mean, there is more work now about higher education and how, you know, there's all, you know, some of the things that are true is that things that we think of as sort of race neutral patterns are having really racially disparate impact, including things like um, public disinvestment from higher education. So um, we're doing an event here um, 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 with about, we did a report recently on racial wealth gaps Mm -hmm. And um, part of what we're finding is that public support for higher education in the state of Illinois has dropped by 50% in the last 20 years. Oh um, and so it's impossible, given one of the biggest dynamics we saw among the middle class families we interviewed was that differences in student loan debt was having this reverberating impact through their entire life. So this mm -hmm. isn't exactly what you're asking about, yeah. but it does know that higher education and the um, way we support higher education, you know, all these things are interconnected. That's why we call it systemic racism, right? And so I absolutely think that that, that was an interesting path. And I would love to kind of read somebody's work, sort of looking at how these things play out in higher educational context. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was true. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Um, so um, Tricia observes that you document uh, segregation and tracking uh, not only in the academic sphere of, of the high school you study, but also in the extracurricular and other social activities of the school too. And, and she wonders, um, uh, um, oh, here, um, so, so what are some of the, what are some of the, uh, important differences and, um, what are some of the, uh, you know, qualitative differences, uh, in looking at the, academic classroom side of, of the tracking and segregation as opposed to looking at the more extracurricular or um, uh, student activities and clubs and that sort of thing. Um, is there, is there, do you see an important uh, difference or is the, the, the socializing just as important in many ways as the, the academic experience? Is it just as important? I, I don't, it's hard to think about them as separate. I mean, for any of us who have been in schools, like your relationship with the institution and your relationship with the community is very, I mean, all these things are connected. So if you feel like you're a second class citizen in an institution, that reverberates in, in lots of different ways. Now, I can't imagine, I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions to this, or I'm sure we could think about places where like there are big football programs, maybe, and people, I don't, um, but I think, you know, those would probably be exceptions more. I think the the kind of, um, I've never seen a school where there is segregation 
in the academic tracks and there's not some you know, pretty pervasive segregation in extracurriculars too. And part of it is just that kids don't know each other and they're, you know, they want to be with their friends and the, you know, social spaces they navigate and opt into, um, you know, I mean, again, there are exceptions to this probably around sports, but I don't, um, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, which one is more important? I mean, probably I, you know, we certainly focus much more on classroom kind of dynamics and I, I haven't studied or even read a study where people are really focusing on how segregation plays out in extracurriculars, but I think it would be interesting, um, uh, you know, to kind of look at how that, you know, and, and spaces, I mean, I think all of us can think about and remember spaces in high schools that tended to be a little different somehow, or maybe there was more mixing than there was another. So studying some of those kind of spaces could be interesting. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Um, John Jama asks a more uh, philosophical question. Uh, he, I'm going to boil it down, um, but he, he basically asks, what is a school supposed to be? What is a good school? What does serving students mean? Um, and I think that's a very basic question, but one that I think we all need to really uh, to think about, too. Um, that is a great question. Um, and I think it gets back to what that I was talking about earlier about how do we get back to thinking about questions of the public good? Um, you know, there's there's a long history of a kind of fight in the U.S. And we sort of talk about this a little bit in the conclusion when we talked about the history of tracking, like our schools. Um, supposed to track people into occupations, right? So the history of tracking is really um, close to the kind of history of eugenics and mm -hmm. intelligence testing and is pretty explicitly racist. And the idea was that some people who tended to be, you know, um, the, literally some of the writing by some of these folks was like, oh, you know, the Mexicans and the other people, these people are like, they need, they need training for, you know, working class jobs. And these other people need a much more interesting and critical education and whatnot. Um, and then there were folks who really pushed for, you know, a high level college prep, you know, that's not the language they use, education for everybody. Um, and, um, you know, that struggle has been going on for a long time and continues to go on in some ways about whether we're gonna, are we gonna, you know, work hard to, to educate critical global citizens and provide um, folks with, the, um, you know, a robust and rigorous education for everybody, or are we going to provide really strong education for some folks and, you know, wish everybody else good luck, you know? Um, and I think it remains true that race and class continue to have way too much impact on, on what kind of education you get access to. Mm -hmm. um, and that's always been true in the U S there's never been a moment when it hasn't been true. I know it's not part of our rhetoric. Um, there's nothing very meritorious about our educational system you know, there are pockets where it's better or worse, but, um, you know, I, I think there's some wonderful books sort of written about what we want schools to be and what they should be. Um, and there's a lot of politics right now pushing schools in the opposite direction. Absolutely. Um, Yase, uh, identifies perhaps, uh, another factor to consider when thinking about the systematic, uh, downward pressure on uh, minority academic achievement. And, and he wonders, um, do you think school curricula are a contributing factor? Um, because um, they, 
they're, they're variants from the lived experience of students uh, could lead to disengagement, could lead to uh, resistance to, to, the, to the subject. What, what do you think about uh, the importance uh, or the role of curricula in, in this academic achievement gap? Um, well, I, so I'll answer in two ways. One is I do think there's a robust literature and important stuff on um, culturally relevant, culturally responsive, culturally sustaining curriculum. I think it's absolutely the case that um, if curriculum is boring, disengaging, not relevant, there's a whole bunch of reasons why absolutely a strong curriculum helps. Um, and, you know, one of the things I found when I was working on the Race in the Schoolyard book was um, there was a moment when I was actually doing the research and I, I realized at some point that one of the classes I was in, I was just so bored, just yeah. even as a researcher, I was just mm -hmm. like, <laughs> and, and thinking about how differently the curriculum in these different schools was engaging, you know, as a young person, it's just, you know, some of that's, it's, you know, so I'm sure it plays a, a role. And we do know that, um, you know, race and class shape, whether you have a teacher who's got you know, a lot of preparation, whether they're teaching in a subject area they're familiar with, whether they even have the textbooks they need to teach, all those kinds of things. Um, but so I think curriculum does matter, but I, I would be careful about suggesting that that's producing the achievement gap um, because to me, like the explanation for curricula is often tied to these other kinds of structural dynamics around race and kind of resources and things. So the counter example I'll tell you is like, there's all these movies like Dangerous Minds, or I can't remember the one with um, Edward James almost, but like there's mm -hmm. these movies that if you just get an amazing teacher who's doing like relevant curriculum, it like changes everything. And then everybody takes calculus and yes, thank you. Stand by me, you know, everybody <laughs> writes a book, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, you just need, you just need a few heroes or we just need a lot of heroes. And I don't think that's why kids aren't doing, you know, I, I just think that we have created this really unequal system and we get really unequal outcomes and if we want it, you know, so um, I, I, I'm not saying like all of us had a teacher in our lives who changed our lives and we're like, everybody needs to be like that, but that's not why we have unequal outcomes. Right. Um, now I, I'm a historian by training. And so uh, most of the secondary school teachers I know are in the area of history. And I, I, I visit high school history classrooms a couple times a year. I, I, I do guest talks and I, I, I visit my friends. And I've noticed something, and that's that the, the high school classroom over the years has become more and more following sort of the workshop modular model as opposed to the traditional teacher stands at the front of the room and lectures a lesson kind of a model. And I suspect that that's kind of happening in education generally with the digitization and the computerization of classrooms. It allows for students to do different things simultaneously and for the teacher's role to be less sort of the classroom leader than the sort of the circulating guidance uh, uh, resource person. And I was thinking about that as I was reading your book that if that's true, if that, if that model is moving more towards that sort of a workshop uh, community model of, of the classroom, this would really work materially against the idea of tracking, right? Because 
part of the reason why you designate a class to be at one level or a different level is you assume that everybody in the class is doing the same thing at the same moment. And so I'm, I'm wondering if, if there isn't sort of, sort of a material reality that's, that's evolving in our society that makes it, it breaks down the, the logic of tracking itself. What, what do you think? Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think it's certainly true that the form of education matters as much as the content. I think that's some of what you're getting at. Um, and um, I think the, you know, there's some great examples of this. Jean Anion wrote a classic article, I don't know how many years ago now, it was about curriculum and um, class. Mm -hmm. And what she found is, and a lot of it was about the form of education that, you know, that in these extremely elite schools, everybody was sitting around a table, yeah. having conversations about high level material, you know, and then, you know, she kind of described in these different spaces and how much the, the, the structure and form of what was going on was so different across these spaces. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think there is something really interesting there. And I think it's certainly true that in the places where we see detracking happening and where there's more heterogeneous grouping and where that's true in the U.S., but also in places like Finland and other places where people talk about a lot that they're, um, they don't do any tracking, um, that um, the education, that, that it works well, because in some ways the, the teaching is better. You know, there's less rote instruction. There's less didactic stuff. There's more mm -hmm. social construction as principles. You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on that's good for everybody. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have been in a history class like that. You know, I was in one of those, <laughs> we never, we never looked at a primary document. We were just supposed to right. memorize what all the, what all the famous dudes had done. So. <laughs> Yep, just the dudes. <laughs> um, I'm sure my age here. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, yes. Uh, so a, a really interesting part of your book in, in chapter three deals with the whole uh, uh, apparatus of discipline and punishment and, and how that leads to such inequitable and uh, biased outcomes. And you mentioned... Uh, Randall Kennedy's colorblind approach to policing as, as one theoretical solution that you, you take away the discretion of the enforcer and thereby prevent one avenue of bias that might enter into the whole chain of discipline. Um, so um, uh, Shelby wonders, are, are, are you advocating for that kind of colorblind discipline uh, approach to schools? Um, and, and before you came on as a class, we were talking about the downside of that, and that's kind of moving us to more of a police state model, <laughs> more policing as a solution. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I don't. Yeah. So I think part of what we were trying to point out is a kind of counterfactual in some ways. I, yeah. I, um, it is one of those interesting points that has had gotten, gotten us a lot of questions uh, in different moments. Um, so part of what... Um, do you remember the page number? I'm going to talk about the quote in particular. I have the book here, but I can't, I'll ha I have to find the page number. Um, one of the, the, one of the things that happens a lot when we think about not just discipline in high schools, but you know, about the criminal, criminal justice system. Um, um, oh, enforce inconvenience everyone. Right. Um, I think part of what we rhetorically that we were trying to bring up there is that like, well-resourced people, as soon as they get inconvenienced themselves in any way, recognize the absurdity of the system, right? 
They recognize the system as being too punitive. There's all these like, you know, and, and they, they want to be treated like, you know, in their full humanity. There's lots of things going on. So part of what happens in schools is that the rules don't change because people who have a lot of resources just avoid the consequences, yes. right? And so part of what we were saying, and that I say all the time when I'm in schools, is that if you enforce the rules similarly across the board, the rules would have to change uh-huh. because then people would widely recognize how unfair the rules are and how ridiculous many of them are and how they don't seem aligned to the activity. And in fact, that the whole regime of punishment is in fact the wrong way to go. I mean, personally, I am very much an abolitionist, so no, I'm not advocating for more, <laughs> more policing, Right. but especially in the school context where, you know, more and more we're trying to push people to think about a kind of much more restorative set of practices um, you know, there's a long way to go between more, you know, schools, even public schools where I've seen them doing restorative justice in some ways, the restorative justice, justice office is often right next to the school resource officer office, right? Yeah. It's not a deep and robust and meaningful engagement with thinking about that. Um, and in the meantime, um, I do think that if we're going to have rules and we're going to enforce them on kids of color and working class kids that we should enforce them on everybody. Yes. So uh-huh. that I do believe. And I, cause I partly believe that that happened. Then, then the folks who have a lot of resources and power would make sure that the rules change rather than that. They just didn't have to deal with them. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, Gwen asks a very uh, uh, contemporary question. H- how has the COVID pandemic affected the achievement gap? Well, you know, in, in some ways I, I want to like, I know we talked about the achievement gap a lot in the book and I would sort of, you know, in the years since, some of the things that have changed is people, some people really push for the idea of thinking about opportunity gaps or kind of rethinking this language about even focusing. We were trying, we were at the moment trying to engage a really wide literature where people were talking about racial achievement gaps and pressing on asking the question, what's racial about achievement gaps? Yep. You know, why, why are they racial in the first place? How do we think about the social doings that produce them or whatever? Right. Um, there are... The COVID-19 epidemic, we just actually published a report about this in Chicago. It's true, it's the same here as it is everywhere, has had hugely disproportionate impact on different communities. And I think that's true across the board. It's true in terms of life and death. It's true in terms of economic you know, impact. It's true in terms of uh, health. You know, it's true. It's true in terms of education. And I don't know, we don't know the reverberations of it yet, I think. Um, you know, a lot of people use the language of learning loss, which I don't like to use, but um, everybody I know who is working in schools, um, the more resource the school, the quicker their kids were back in school, mm-hmm. the more resources there were for um, remote, um, you know, remote learning, the more, um, and for, for a lot of kids, I mean, even for a lot of the students that we have at UIC, I don't know what it was like there. You know, even if folks had devices and even if they had internet, they were often in homes where three other people were trying to be in class at the same time, right. um, all those kinds of things. So whatever inequities we have in educational experiences and outcomes were, if anything, exacerbated by the epidemic. And I don't know that we have a full sense yet of exactly what the consequences are. Um, but it also has just had a disastrous impact on young people everywhere. And I keep hoping, and I think it's happening a little bit, not as much as I would hope, that it will recenter us in many ways on thinking differently about what young people need 
and about the press for, you know, kind of constant press for high achievement, high this, you know, and really, you know, much more focus on young people's social emotional needs and on thinking about what the role of schools is in a kind of broader sense. I think, you know, some places really backed off on standardized testing and used the use the pandemic as a moment to rethink some general practices. That has not been as true here. They paused it last year, but they're back doing it all again. So, yeah, yeah. Well, before I let you go, I want to ask you what you're currently working on. What are your projects at the moment? Yeah. Um, well, you know, so when I, in the, in my role as the director of the research Institute, we publish a series of reports on the state of racial justice in Chicago. And we have several that are almost done or about to come out. Some about demographic change. We have one now that's coming out soon about um, erroneous tickets. So I don't know if you've a lot of people paid attention after Ferguson to the kind of ways that municipalities raised revenue through ticketing and fines mm -hmm. and fees and that sort of thing. Yep. And there's been a lot of important research about that in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's some work that we're doing along those lines and doing a report kind of following up on some of the others on Arab Americans. I'm also writing a book right now that's kicking my butt. Um, writing books is hard, you know, um, <laughs> but it's about talking to young people about race. It's really for teachers and parents in some ways also, but folks over the years have asked me, you know, to press me to kind of, anyway, so I'm in the middle of that. Um, and then also we doing some articles on um, racial wealth gaps and things and other kind of data we've collected in Chicago in recent years. Great. Well, we'll look, we'll look for all those. They look, they sound terrific. So yeah. look forward yeah. to seeing them. Yeah. Good. Well, the reports are all on our website um, and they're all free. So if anybody's interested in, I mean, they're Chicago, so you got to be interested in Chicago, but they do have lots of interesting data about um, the conditions and experiences of different groups in the city and wealth gaps and COVID and all kinds of stuff. So if you're interested, take a look. Fantastic. Great. Well, I, I, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and, and thank you for your, your very insightful and important work. Uh, we've all benefited from it. And so thank you very much. Nice meeting everybody. Yeah. Here we are in the 2010s and 2020s, and uh, 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 Professor Lewis uh, reminds us that segregation is still very much with us, but has taken a new form, namely a form within the internal process of the school and not necessarily the school districts being segregated formally themselves, although that certainly happens too. Um, so I learned a lot from this book. I, I, I really had not explored this issue in depth before, and, it, and it, it really, really struck me the degree and the depth and uh, the the rigidity of internal segregation within this high school. Mm -hmm. I can, you know, speaking from my experience, uh, that was uh, that racial tracking made a lot of what what I went through in my schooling make a lot of sense. Uh, I went to school in a, a district in North Texas that wasn't. Uh, necessarily well-funded by surrounding property taxes uh, and was 85% Latinx students. And 
Um, you know, I can remember in elementary when this, you know, racial tracking wasn't, you know, a, as much of a thing, uh, having a much more diverse class and then uh, moving up in, uh, you know, through middle school and high school, uh, I was, you know, tracked into these honors and AP, uh, you know, classes and and completely saw this, you know, it really mm-hmm. spoke to what uh, my experience was uh, growing up as a, a white student in, in North Texas. So, um, and I think, you know, there, I'm sure there's, you know, extra literature that many of the students were, uh, you know, Spanish speaking. And so we had almost a uh, Another track beyond that, that was the, the kind of English as a second language track, ESL track. So um, it, it made a lot of what I saw and experienced make, make more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a similar experience in high school uh, to yours. Um, <laughs> definitely, you know, tracked into those same programs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to my benefit. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, not right. necessarily, though, to everyone's benefit, clearly. Um, one thing that I was reflecting on, you know, look back on my own high school experience, and I don't have an answer for why this is, so I'm, I guess I'm throwing this out there in case anyone wants to make this a research study. The uh, high school that I went to, Kalamazoo Central High School in Kalamazoo, Michigan, is has one of the highest disparities for graduation rates between black men and black women in America. Um, I did a little bit of research on it uh, going into uh, our discussion, and it has gotten better over time, but around the time I graduated, it was about two to one. It was about 80% of black women and 40% of black men finished all four years of high school. And so that, I think, obviously, there's something going on inside Mm -hmm. the school in how people are being treated based on race and gender Mm -hmm. that is leading to very, very different outcomes from people who may be literally coming from the same families, you know, if not, you know, minimally coming from the same communities. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, again, throwing that out there for anyone who wants to do research, figure out what's going on with KPS that's leading to these radically different race, gender outcomes. So my high school experience was not like that, unfortunately, Um, kind of starting in junior high um, when there was like, you know, minimal talk about um, college prep since, you know, we're about to get to high school and then to college. They wanted to have us prepared. Um, It always kind of seemed like for my high school, which was, it was pretty diverse in terms of a very predominantly white school, but it was still a predominantly white school. Um, It always kind of seemed like when I wanted to reach out about college prep, they did not take me seriously. Um, I actually had my junior high principal one day pull me into her office and tell me that she did not think I would make it to high school, let alone college. Mm. So very great to say, of course, her name was Karen. Um, (laughs) Do you have her number? Can I call her? (laughs) I am actually planning on, once I have my graduation photos, I will be sending her one with a very long, foul-ridden letter for her. Mm -hmm. Um, But all throughout junior high, all through high school, um, it just kind of seemed like people did not take me seriously when I said I wanted to go to college. But then speaking to my white counterparts who weren't involved in extracurriculars or had a lower GPA than me or weren't in the same classes as me, um, 
they seem to have more of the college prep, the college tracking pushed on them more than mm-hmm. me, which was very interesting to see. Um, and interestingly enough, none of them actually went to college, wow. even though they went <laughs> through that college tracking. Yeah. Um, so I really do appreciate this book um, because I don't feel like none of this is talked about enough. And especially once you get to college, seeing that BGSU is a predominantly white college, I see a lot of the same attitudes with administration, but also with students. Mm -hmm. Um, You can kind of tell, at least for me, being a black woman, you can kind of tell when a white student went through a lot of college tracking Mm. and then they start struggling in college and you kind of start to see their like superiority complex Mm. crumble. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's when they start lashing out at you like, oh, you're only here because of affirmative Mm. action or, oh, you're just like a diversity student. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, it's very telling to me. So I really do appreciate this book. Yeah. Well, once again, thank you, everybody. Uh, I, I cannot express my appreciation enough for all of your insights in, and uh, thoughts, uh, even if they do transgress uh, state law. All right, everybody, be safe, be well. See you next time. I also want to thank our musical artists that provide the interludes between our segments, Danilo Prates, Jifa, Airtone, and Texas Radio Fish. Until next week, I am Tim Messer-Cruz, and this is Real CRT.